Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. I'd like for you to turn in your Bible, please, to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 21 through 25. And you may also want to put your thumb back in Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. From Matthew chapter 1. Verse 23 and following, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife, and did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. The question is, who is Emmanuel, and what does he have to do with Jesus? Who is Emmanuel, and what does he have to do with Jesus? In order to understand what's going on in these few verses, you have to understand what was going on in ancient Judea in the days of King Ahaz. And that is recorded in Isaiah chapter 7. This forms the backstory to the name Emmanuel. Now I'm not going to read chapter 7 to you, but what I'm going to do is kind of update it in my vernacular so that we can cut to the chase, if you will. In Isaiah 7, we have a man by the name of Ahaz who became king in Judea when he was 20 years old. He ruled with his father for about four years, they were co-regent. And then, after his father, he ruled um, Judea by himself for another 16 years. So he was king in Judea for 20 years. And his reign ended uh, at 715 B.C., 715 years before Jesus was born. So quite a long time before Christ was born, we have the story of King Ahaz. And in the story of King Ahaz, we come to our first encounter with the name Emmanuel. King Ahaz had a godly father, Jehoram. But Ahaz was as godless and as wicked and as evil as a man could be. 
He turned the people away from God. And he turned the people away from God by desecrating the holy temple in Jerusalem. He replaced the altar of God with a pagan altar fashioned after the pagan altar of the Assyrians, whom at that time he came into league with. Not only did he replace the altar of God with a pagan altar, he also encouraged the people to, to make their offerings of sacrifice to the pagan gods of the Assyrian people. And even King Ahaz himself, now this is Ahaz, not Ahab. Ahab was the husband of Jezebel. This is a totally different fellow. King Ahaz, he often sacrificed some of his sons to this pagan demon god of the Assyrians. Not only that, he built pagan shrines and pagan altars to these demon gods throughout the entire city of Jerusalem. Historians tell us that there was a pagan shrine or a pagan altar to these demon gods on every street corner of Jerusalem. And he didn't stop there. He also commanded that these pagan shrines and altars would be distributed throughout the entire country of Judea, in every town, in every village, in every city. And so he encouraged the Jewish people to forsake the true and living God and to worship the demon gods of the Assyrians. Now one day, King Ahaz had heard that Retzin, the king of Syria, and Pekach, the king of Israel, their Jewish brothers to the north, had mobilized their armies to attack Judah. King Ahaz and the people of Jerusalem were so terrified of an impending attack and a sure conquest that they began to shake, they began to tremble and to shake like almond trees in the harvest. They were so terrified at the prospects of being destroyed by the king of Syria and by the king of the northern tribes of Israel. So God spoke to Isaiah the prophet and he said, I want you to take your son and I want you to go pay King Ahaz a visit. I want you to go visit this king and I want you to tell him to chill out and to not be concerned, don't be upset, don't be disturbed about King Ratzin and King Petkuk. They plan to conquer you. They plan to overrun you. They plan to set up a puppet king in your place. But don't be worried about that. I'm in control. I'll never let it happen. In fact, he told Isaiah to tell King Ahaz that I'm going to crush the Syrian army. And in 65 years, Israel, the northern ten tribes of Israel will be utterly and completely destroyed. 
So don't be alarmed. Don't be worried. Trust me. Trust me, God said, and you will survive. Now I want you to understand this. I mean, you need to get the bigger picture here. You need to pull all of the information together. God is speaking to a pagan Jewish king. He's speaking to a king whose father knew God and walked in the ways of God all the days that he was king. So King Ahaz is familiar with who Jehovah is. He is familiar with who Yahweh is. But he has completely abandoned God and has taught the people of Judah to abandon God. He is a completely pagan Jewish king. And he's done everything in his power to erase the name of God and the memory of God from the minds and from the hearts of God's people. And it's this same God who is telling this wicked, evil, pagan Jewish king, trust me, trust me, and you will survive the impending attack. Well, Scripture doesn't say whether or not King Ahaz believed the word of Isaiah, but if you read between the lines, you kind of get the idea that he didn't. He didn't believe the words of the prophet because God sent Isaiah back to King Ahaz with a second message. And he told King Ahaz, Ask me for a sign. Ask me for some sign, some miracle, some indication that will assure you in your mind and heart that what I'm telling you is true. The sign can be anything you want. It can be anything that you name. Well, King Ahaz responded to the prophet Isaiah and said, not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I am not going to tempt the Lord God. So Isaiah said, okay, listen up, king. It's bad enough that you wear out the patience of God's people. Do you dare wear out the patience of God himself? I'll give you a sign. And the sign is going to be that a virgin will conceive and will give birth to a son and she will name him Emmanuel. Isaiah 7, 14. A virgin, your English Bible says a young woman, the Hebrew says a virgin, will conceive, bear a son, and will name him Emmanuel. And the name means God with us. Now that's the backstory to the name Emmanuel. And I want you to understand that the name Emmanuel is mentioned only three times in Scripture. 
right here in Isaiah 7.14. And then again in Isaiah 8, verse 8, which refers to the Syrian conquest. And then again in Matthew 1 and verse 23 in reference to Mary's son, Jesus. Three times mentioned in Scripture, but a very, very important name. In context. In context. You have to understand the context to appreciate what God is saying, not only to King Ahaz, but also to the Jewish people in the days of Jesus. So having kind of given you that backstory and knowing what you already know about the Gospel of Matthew and the birth narratives, we have to ask the question, what is the significance of the name Emmanuel? What was the significance of the name Emmanuel to King Ahaz in Isaiah chapter 7? And what is the significance of the name Emmanuel in the days of Jesus here in Matthew chapter 1. Well, I'm glad you asked because I'm going to tell you. King Ahaz and the Jews in Judea and especially in Jerusalem had run off the rails, spiritually speaking. They had completely gone spiritually AWOL. They had forsaken the Lord God they had shut down the temple. They had replaced the altar of God with a pagan altar. They were no longer offering the prescribed sacrifices of Mosaic law. They were offering their own sacrifices and even their own children on these pagan altars as a sacrifice to the demon gods of Assyria. They were setting up altars throughout all of Judea and encouraging the people to engage in this pagan worship. Was God happy with this? Absolutely not. God was angry at the actions of this heathen king that had ascended a throne. Well, why didn't he allow the armies of the ten northern tribes under King Pekah and the, the, uh, the Syrian army, not Assyrian, but the Syrian army to continue down across the border and to completely destroy the king for his wickedness and the people of Judea and Jerusalem for their apostasy. Did God have the power to do that? Absolutely. Did God have the will to do that? Absolutely. Were they deserving of that kind of judgment from God? Absolutely. So why didn't God permit it? Why didn't God just wipe it all out and start all over again? We have to understand who God is. And we have to understand what God is really all about. And I think sometimes, dear friends, we, we skip that. We miss that. We ignore that. Or we don't study God's Word enough 
to really understand who the true and living God is. You see, 1,400 years earlier, and get this in your mind, 1,400 years earlier, God made a promise to Judah, the son of Jacob. Before Jacob died, God made a promise to Judah through his father, Jacob, that he would be the father of a tribe of people through whom the promised Messiah would come. God had promised Jacob 1,400 years earlier that his son, Judah, would be the father of a tribe in Israel through whom the promised Messiah would come. 130 years earlier than this time, God promised King David and made a covenant with King David that through him kings would come to rule over Israel until the time when one king would come and would rule over God's people forever. To allow King Ahaz to die and to allow the tribes of Judah the tribe of Judah to be utterly destroyed by the Syrian army and by the Israeli army would end the line of King David right there because King Ahaz was a descendant of King David it would end the line of King David right there. And it would eliminate the people through whom Messiah would come. So God, in effect, would be allowing his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah... He would allow that covenant to be destroyed. And he would also be allowing his covenant with King David to be destroyed as well. And God never breaks a promise. And God never allows his covenants to be destroyed by men. Now listen. Listen carefully. God always keeps his promises. Always. He always keeps his promises. There is not a single promise in Scripture to those inside the Jewish commonwealth or outside the Jewish commonwealth. There's not a promise of God in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. There's not a promise of God that he makes to his people or to those who will become his people there is never a promise of God that is ever broken never 
So when the Apostle Paul writes in Romans that if you will confess with your lips the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you do confess with your lips the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you can bank on it that that promise of God will never, ever be broken. Never. And you can believe that when Jesus says that those whom the Father has given to me, I hold them in my hand, and I am in my Father's hand, and no one can take me out of my Father's hand, then you can be sure that the promise of God for your security in Christ Jesus remains unbroken. And if the Lord, through His servant, the Apostle Paul says, in Romans, that there is nothing in heaven, on earth, or beneath the earth, nothing in the past, present, or future, nothing created by God in all of the universe that can separate you from the love of God, that promise will never ever be broken. And you can very well say, well, if I choose to, I can distance myself from the love of God. No, you can't. You can't distance yourself from the love of God. God promised it could never happen by anything on heaven, on earth, or beneath the earth. God promised that not, that, that could never happen by anything that God has created. And you're a creation of God. You can never distance yourself from the love of God. You can try but you will never succeed. God always fulfills His promises. God never breaks His covenants. God allowed King Ahaz to suffer the consequences of his sin. And dearly beloved, God will allow us to suffer the consequences of our sins as well. You can be sure, Scripture says, that your sins will find you out. You can be sure that if you sow to the wind, you will reap the whirlwind. God allowed King Ahaz to suffer the consequences of his sin. He also allowed the Jews in Judea to suffer the consequences of their sin. But God would never allow the land of Judea. He would never allow the city of Jerusalem. And he would never allow the line of King David to be utterly destroyed. Why? Because he's God. And he said, I have made a promise and I keep my promises. God said to King Ahaz, in essence, God said to King Ahaz, despite all of the evil that you have done, despite the armies from the north that are threatening you, I will not let you die without surviving children. I will not let Judah be destroyed. I will save you and I will give you a sign that a young virgin will conceive and bear a son and name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. What a profound promise. And dear friends, listen, that's a promise that you need to hold on to today. Huh? 
Is everything right with the world today? Is everything going hunky-dory in your life today? Are you happy with all of the things that are going on in our nation, in our state, in our Central Valley? Are you pleased as punch that all of the, uh, the threats that are being made, all of the, uh, all of the uh, wrangling that's going on, all of the strife that we're experiencing, all of the economic upheaval that we're experiencing, all the vocational shutdowns that we're experiencing, are you completely satisfied with all of that? Well, some of you aren't convinced. But dear friends, it doesn't matter. Listen, it doesn't matter what's going on in our world today. God is still with us. He is still with us. He has not abandoned us. He has not turned His back on us. We may have turned our back on Him, but He has not turned His back on us. He is still with us to this very day. And through the prophet Isaiah, he, God told this wicked king, despite all that you have become and all that you have done to, re to remove my name from my people, I'm sticking around to the very end. You can bank on that. And I'm going to give you a sign that will prove that. And the sign is going to be a young woman is going to have a child and she's going to name his, his name Emmanuel. And that name, first instance of that name in Scripture, that name assures you that I will be with you. I will be with you. Now, what about this thing in Matthew chapter 1? Well, we know his name is supposed to be called Jesus because that's what the angel Gabriel told Joseph. And that's what Joseph did. He named him Jesus when he was born. Well, let me speak to you for just a moment about this phenomenon in Scripture called the duality or the dual nature of prophecy. The dual nature of prophecy. In a number of instances in the Bible... In a number of instances in the Bible, an event declared by a prophet of God is given to address an immediate situation or issue. Let me say that again. In a number of instances in Scripture, an event is declared by a prophet of God to address an immediate situation or an immediate issue. That prophecy is fulfilled usually within a generation, 40 years. Usually within a generation, 40 years. Sometimes that same prophecy uttered by that same prophet will also address a situation or an issue at an unspecified time in the future. It may be in the near future. It may be in the distant future. Let me give you some for instances, okay? Genesis, and you don't need to turn there, Genesis chapter 9, verses 12 through 17. 
If you're familiar with the Old Testament stories, you'll realize that this is the time after the flood, the great flood. Noah and the animals, Noah and his family and the animals were in the ark, and they were there for a little over a year. And they came out, and Noah built an altar, and he sacrificed to the Lord God, and the Lord God made a promise. He made a covenant promise with Noah that the earth will never again be destroyed by a flood. Now understand this, God did not say that the earth would never again be destroyed. What he did say was the earth would never be destroyed by a flood. Does that covenant promise exist today? How do you know it? What was the sign of the covenant promise? A rainbow. Do we still have that sign today? Can you believe the covenant promise that God made with Noah is passed down from generation to generation that God will never destroy the earth by a flood again? It's been what, six, eight thousand years since that time? Has God ever destroyed the earth by a flood again? Now, some parts of the earth have been destroyed. Some nations have been flooded. Some states here in the United States have been flooded. But God has never destroyed the earth by a flood again. And we have that covenant promise and we're reminded of that covenant promise every time you see a rainbow in the sky. That is an example of the duality of the nature of prophecy. Let me give you another one. In the Olivet Discourse, In the words of Jesus Christ to his disciples as they were there on the Mount of Olives in Matthew chapter 24, Mark chapter 13, and Luke chapter 21, Jesus described a horrible, terrible, destructive time that was coming upon the Jewish people. It was a time of tribulation. Jesus described that time of tribulation. Now, some folks want to say that what Jesus was talking about to the disciples there on the Mount of Olives has to do with the end times. What we would say today in evangelical circles, the days of the tribulation. Well, dear friends, if Jesus was talking to his disciples about something that would happen generations and generations and generations and generations and generations removed from them, What would that matter to the disciples at that point in time? What significance would that have to those disciples at that point in time? Absolutely nothing. It wouldn't mean a thing to them. But what people fail to understand or fail to grasp is that when a prophecy is given, sometimes there is a dual application. There is a dual nature to that prophecy. What was Jesus talking to those disciples about? He was talking to them about the time when Jerusalem and Judea would be overrun by the Romans in A.D. 70 and the entire land would be laid waste. And did that happen? Go back into your history books and you'll find out that in A.D. 70, Rome got fed up, got tired with having to deal with these Jewish people, sent the generals and sent the armies down into Jerusalem, down into Judea, and completely wiped them out. Destroyed the temple, tore the city apart, burned it to the ground, 
dispersed the children of Israel to the four winds. But that prophecy also has to do with something that's going to happen yet in the future. If you go to Revelation chapter 6 and you read through Revelation chapter 19 and you look at those chapters in Revelation and compare them to what Jesus said to the disciples in Mark 13, Luke 21, and Matthew chapter 24, you will notice that there is an uncanny parallel to what the Jews experienced in the days of the tribulation that ended in AD 70 and what's going to happen to the entire earth when the church is raptured and the great tribulation comes. That is the nature of the duality of prophecy. It doesn't happen with every prophecy that's given, but it happens to a lot of the prophecies that are given. So we come to the birth of Emmanuel. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, the birth of this child, Emmanuel, was a sign to King Ahaz an assurance that King Ahaz would not die without having children, sons, to succeed him. The line of David has to be preserved. And so King Ahaz has got to have a son that's going to survive the wickedness and the evil things that Ahaz has done. This is an assurance that King Ahaz would not die without having a surviving heir. And it's an assurance to the people of Judah that they would not be conquered by the armies of Syria and the armies of Israel. God said a young woman would have a baby boy. Do we know the name of this woman? No, we do not. It's not given to us in Scripture. Do we know the outcome of this child that was named Emmanuel? We do not. It's not given in Scripture. Was Isaiah talking to King Ahaz about something that would happen 700 years from that point in time? No. It would not have meant anything to King Ahaz if Isaiah was referring to someone that didn't exist for another 750 years. There was a woman known by King Ahaz. We don't know her name. King Ahaz knew her. A young woman, a virgin woman, who gave birth to a child and named her child Emmanuel. And that became a sign to the king. As long as that child was alive, as long as that child grew up and was in and around the court of King Ahaz, that child would be a reminder to the king and to all of Judea that God was still with them. They were still his people and God was still their God. How do we know that's true? How do we know that came to pass? Well, God said to King Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah, in 65 years, I'm going to completely obliterate the northern tribes. That happened. In 721 BC, Judah continued to exist while the ten northern tribes were completely destroyed. God kept his word. Judah continued to exist for centuries. 
for another 725 years. Judah continued to exist until a young virgin woman conceived and bore a child. And his name was called Jesus. Now listen. Jesus was born of the tribe of Judah. Jesus was born of the line of David. God keeps his promises. God keeps his covenants. What does that have to do in Matthew 123 with the birth of the Messiah? God had promised that the tribe of Judah would continue to exist. And he promised that the line of King David would continue to exist until Messiah was born. Again, we don't know the name of that young woman and we don't know what happened to that child. But we do know the name of the young virgin who gave birth to another Emmanuel 725 years later. The woman's name is Mary. And her child's name is Jesus. The Jews. And I'm going to give you a bird's eye view here. The Jews have suffered untold misery since the days of King Ahaz. You only have to be generally familiar with history to realize how much the Hebrew people have suffered down through the ages. They have suffered misery since the days of Ahaz. They, have been con they were conquered by Babylon and they were carried away into exile where they spent 70 years under pagan kings in the midst of a pagan culture that worshipped pagan gods. But they returned to their homeland 70 years later under the decree of King Cyrus of Persia. Their land had been completely devastated. Their temple had been destroyed. But they began the rebuilding process only to be conquered by the Greek Empire. And then after the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire. King Herod, in the days before Jesus and the days during Jesus, King Herod rebuilt the temple but it was an empty mausoleum to a faded memory of God who hadn't spoken to his people in over 400 years. God had remained silent. God's law had been corrupted by the Pharisees. The priesthood had been sold out to the highest bidder. The worship of the people was a ritual and a routine that had lost all of its meaning. The leaders of Israel had grown fat from greed and from power. And they had an elevated attitude of their own self-importance. The common folk had been reduced to eking out a living. Hoping somehow, some way, someday, God would look with favor on them once again. The despair of the people in the time just before Jesus was born 
all that was going on kind of reminds me of all that's going on today. Hopelessness. Frustration. Anger. Brokenheartedness. Empty spirit. Wondering if God is even concerned about us anymore. Then, a baby was born to a young woman named Mary. He was named Jesus because He came to save His people. But He was also Emmanuel. The prophecy of Isaiah 700 plus years before. Once again, renewed to remind the people God had not abandoned them. God was still with them. Why? Because God never breaks His promises. And God never allows His covenants to be destroyed. Now, once again, the duality of prophecy. The first Emmanuel was born to give King Ahaz and the people of Judah assurance that they would not be conquered by the enemy on the borders. This Emmanuel was born to conquer the enemy of God's people. And the greatest enemy is Satan himself. Notice the contrast. The first Emmanuel was born to assure the people that they would not be conquered. The second Emmanuel was born to tell the people that the enemy would be conquered by them. And indeed, our enemy has been conquered by the man Jesus. So this Emmanuel was born to remind God's people that despite all that had been taking place in their history, through the corruption of the law, through the corruption of their worship, through the politic that was rampant in that day and time, through all of the misery that they had suffered, God had not forgotten them. God had not abandoned them. God was still with them. And rather than having a temple to remind them of that, rather than having a pure religion to remind them of that, rather than having leadership that would remind them of that, God gave them His Son to remind them of that. Jesus lived a perfectly sinless life. He offered His body as a sacrifice for sin upon the cross. He was buried and He was resurrected from the dead three days later. And He ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven. And He has sent His Holy Spirit to be in us and to be among us to remind us that He is Emmanuel, God with us. What did Jesus say in Matthew 28? Verses 18 to 20. All authority, Jesus said, has been given to me 
in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and I will be with you to the very end of the age. Amen? Amen. Stand with me. David's going to lead us as we sing. Wow. How inspires is that? Man, we go into this week. Let's do the following to keep this mindful in our hearts. Let's worship and adore Him. Let's worship and adore Him. Let's worship and adore Him, Christ the Lord. For He alone is worthy. Sing it out. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.